Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zayla, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Joe Biden is the presumed next president of the United States. But what does a Biden-Harris administration mean for Catholic health care and for Catholics as a whole? While most people see abortion as its greatest threat, the new administration poses numerous other challenges as well. So what can Catholic healthcare expect from a Biden-Harris administration, and how will it and the NCBC respond? I'm joined today by Dr. Joseph Meany, NCBC President, and Ted Furton, NCBC Director of Publications, to discuss these and other important matters. Joseph and Ted, welcome to our Bioethics On Air podcast. It's a pleasure to be back, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having us. And Ted, I have to welcome you back. I was looking this morning, and it has been over three years since you've been on one of our podcasts. So we will have to we'll have to do something again more quickly, you know, in the future. But uh, but welcome back. Thanks. So I'd like to start our conversation today generally, and then moving down to the more specific. So I'd like to start by getting both of your comments on the 2020 election as a whole. What uh, takeaways would you like to share with our audience, both both good and bad? Starting with you, Joseph. So I was thinking as I looked at the election unfolding, and of course, <laughs> I just went to bed because I knew there was going to be no result uh, on the night of the election, you know, one of the things that really struck me was how the polling had totally failed. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was this impression that was widespread and that was, you know, over months and months and months that this was going to be a blowout election, that uh, Trump would lose by huge margins everywhere, and it would be decided, you know, very early in the evening, basically. And that, of course, did not happen. It became a nail biter. And then even even more so, right, because things were flip flopping back and forth and it was not clear, you know, who was winning where and and what was going on. So there was just a lot of confusion. I think it was probably one of the most confused elections since really the 2000 election, where once again, it kind of went to the courts. Uh, because there was just so much controversy and it was so close. And then the other thing that really struck me was, you know, that the the so-called blue wave, right, that the Democrats were hoping to to gain all over the place, all over the map, did not happen. Uh, they did not win. In fact, they lost seats in uh, in the House of Representatives. They uh, they gained back maybe one seat, a net of one, you know. And we'll have to see what happens in Georgia for the Senate. But it doesn't look like uh, they have much of a chance to take uh, a majority there. And then, you know, there were different ballot initiatives uh, that were kind of mixed. Uh, you know, there was a, a pro-abortion victory in uh, in Colorado because a ban on abortion that was proposed to the electorate there uh, failed. But then Louisiana passed a law that was basically a trigger law that if Roe v. Wade is reversed, then abortion becomes automatically illegal in Louisiana. So I, I thought it was it was a very interesting election. It was certainly very... Um, unexpected from, from my point of view. Yeah. Ted, your take or your takeaways. Yeah. Well, I would uh, want to echo Joseph's comments about the House of Representatives. I think uh, the Republicans had a very good showing in the House and in particular pro-life Republicans. There were 16 new pro-life Republican women elected in the House of Representatives in this cycle. Uh, There wasn't a total of 16 net gains there because some of these seats were held by Republicans previously, but they weren't declared pro-life candidates. So that's a very extraordinary showing, and I'm sure it's going to be very disappointing to Nancy Pelosi because uh, she will not be able to count on those women for her pro-abortion votes. Overall, the Republicans are set to gain about a dozen seats in the House. So that makes uh, Pelosi's margin very narrow indeed. She has three or four from her side that she can lose, and then she loses the vote. I mean, she can lose two or three, and then she, then she's going to lose the vote anything higher than that. So nothing controversial is likely to pass the House of Representatives, or that is at least nothing highly radical. And the same thing is true pretty much for the Senate, Um, The fear was that if uh, the predictions were correct, as Joseph was pointing out, they proved out to be very wrong, 
some of the worst ideas of the Democratic Party would have been put into place, including packing the Supreme Court. Now, that would have been uh, something that the public at large doesn't like, but I don't think they would have cared. In any case, that's been avoided. And to, to Trump's credit, I know he's got kind of a divisive personality, but he has been stalwart on appointing excellent judges to the courts uh, at various levels, including three to the U.S. Supreme Court. These have all been constitutionalists, which means they will follow the laws as written in the Constitution, and then the laws that follow from that or under that, under the Constitution, passed more generally by the federal government and by the states. So this is very important because many of the gains that the Democrats have had on the moral issues, abortion being a perfect example, have not occurred through the normal legislative process. Correct. It's yeah. occurred through the appointment of, well, left-wing judges who supposedly believe in a living constitution, uh, which means they get to interpret it in any way they please. Another e excellent example is the Obergefell decision that was a uh, you know authorizing homosexual marriage that was defeated in state after state some of the people of the states enacting state constitutional amendments which are very hard to do there's a lot of energy but uh the lawyers just said well what do these people think this is a democratic republic or something no we're going to take this to the supreme court and have it overturned and they were very successful so this has been the way for the democrats for some time now and it's it's coming to an end, and I think we can look forward to some some promising decisions from a much more conservative Supreme Court uh, uh, today. Yeah, yeah, great, great points, both of you. I would like to to come back uh, quickly uh, and just talk about what's going on in Georgia with the Senate runoff. So we are recording this podcast on the 24th of November. It's the, the week of Thanksgiving. So, and the point of all of this is that the elections really aren't over yet because we still have this uh, Georgia Senate runoff. There's two Senate seats in Georgia that are up for grabs. And as Joseph, you mentioned earlier, hopefully the, um, the, you know, the Republicans will be able to, to hold a majority uh, in the Senate after that. But I'm wondering if, if either you, Joseph, or Ted have any anything further um, you'd like to say about the importance of this runoff coming up on January 5th. Well, I could just add that, um, so it, it is unusual to have two Senate seats from one state. Um, you know, it's because of a, a resignation and then the natural cycle. Normally it's, you know, right. one third of the Senate seats that are that are renewed every every two years. But in any case, it is interesting to see how Georgia is somewhat of a swing state, um, which is surprising because it used to be a very solid Democrat before and then very solid Republican for many years after that. But this election, it was very, very close there. Uh, I think it is important to see that the um, who controls the Senate because currently the the Republicans have 50, 50 senators. And so that will, um, will almost give them the majority. They just need to win one of the two Senate seats. Uh, to have the majority. If if the Democrats win both of those special elections, then they will have 50-50. And then the vice president, who's president of the Senate, right. will be able to cast a, a deciding vote. And so de facto, the Democrats will have a majority. So I think it's pretty important that uh, that the Republicans win one or both of those those elections. Yeah. And it's, right. it's in the, when you're in the middle of a tight balance like this, where everything depends on perhaps one person it's uh, very important uh, to also pay attention to the the liberal Republicans and the conservative Democrats. <laughs> you know, they're the ones who are going to decide these issues. And uh, I know the senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, has already said he's not going to be voting for any of, I think he actually called it the crazy stuff that uh, the the liberals are going to be pushing for in the Senate. So, even even if it gets really close, I think uh, it's unlikely that we're going to see anything too damaging come out of this particular Congress. And in general, uh, this the the next four years, uh, I mean, Biden is 
a president who does not have anywhere near the level of energy that President Trump has. Uh, Biden's 78, Trump is 74, but the difference in energy levels is really quite remarkable. So Biden's not going to have a lot of a lot to work with, with the Congress being so evenly divided, and given his own, um, I'm going to call it lethargy. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether he's going to be able to accomplish a great deal. Yeah, well, that's a great lead-in, Ted, to uh, to our next question, and I'd like to start with you first answering it. So, what are your initial thoughts? about a Biden-Harris administration? And overall, do you think this administration will help or will hurt Catholic health care? Well, it certainly is going to line itself up to hurt Catholic health care. I mean, uh, we know that all of the executive decisions that Biden can take uh, that um, favor uh, abortion, transgenderism, uh, diminishing religious liberty, all of these issues are going to be done, you know, with phone and pen, uh, use the phrase that Obama made famous. So he's going to do all those things. But beyond that, in terms of legislative accomplishments, I don't know that he's going to be able to get too much through. It depends. You know, there's a lot of unpredictable things in politics, of course, but uh, one of the interesting points about the uh, post-election situation was that the stock market jumped, and it jumped because, well, people who invest don't like uh, uncertainty. And after the election, it became clear that there wasn't going to be a lot of change. Things would probably remain pretty static. Nonetheless, uh, Joe Biden will use everything he has to harm Catholic healthcare and advance issues that are diametrically opposed to his professed faith. Joseph, your, your initial thoughts about a, a Biden-Harris administration and its effect on Catholic healthcare. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree that um, one of the big problems, in a sense, is that uh, Joe Biden calls himself a Catholic. Um, you know, and he was baptized a Catholic and, and he received Catholic sacraments, but he takes positions that are diametrically opposed to what the church believes on many, many moral issues, uh, in particular on the issue of abortion, but probably, you know, a whole series of other things like contraception and sterilization and homosexuality and transgenderism, etc. And so I think the, the cultural influence that he can bring to bear and also, you know, the might of the federal government, because what does the president really have in the executive branch are all these, you know, appointments in his cabinet and health and human services and, you know, the attorney general and, and all these different things that are not really dependent upon legislative action, but that, you know, they can simply put in executive orders. Uh, he can, you know, even choose what things to highlight and speak about, you know, use the bully pulpit of the presidency to push certain ideas. And I think uh, he's made it very clear that where he stands on a lot of these moral issues is, is contrary to the ethos of Catholic healthcare and, and of Catholic belief in general. So I think he's going to, he's going to really push some bad things. And I think he might sow a lot of confusion. I think one of the, the biggest dangers really is for people to think, well, maybe the Catholic church isn't, uh, so clear on some of these positions because exactly, you know, yeah. that's one of the things that the the U.S. bishops have uh, have seen as a real danger, and I think that's why they appointed that that task force to basically correct things. If if he ever says you know that uh, he's doing this as a good Catholic or his Catholic faith leads him to do this, that, or the other, which right. is in opposition to the faith, then uh, he needs to be corrected very quickly, or, or people will get the wrong idea. Right. All right. So let's move into some of the the concrete issues, and and the biggest one uh, out there is is the abortion issue, uh, as has been previously previously identified. So one of the things that Joe Biden has already said that he will seek to do as president is codify Roe versus Wade, 
And this is obviously very important because, as I'm sure most of us, uh, most of our listeners know, Roe v. Roe v. Wade is a it's a Supreme Court ruling. It's 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 never been a law that was passed. And essentially, this is what Biden wants to do. He wants to have the Congress pass a law that he would sign so that abortion would would be you know it would be the law of the land um, legislatively, not just through judicial fiat. And a lot of concerns with this. So, um, what could such a what could such legislation do? Well, it could legalize abortion up to birth and even beyond. Um, we have the the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act that is, you know, there that uh, pro life members of the House have tried to get passed, but the Democrats will not do that. But this, you know, this legislation could legalize abortion up to birth. Um, it could override state-level abortion laws, remove state-level abortion restrictions. Uh, it could also remove conscience protections uh, for clinicians. So these are all things that are that are possible under such legislation. So Joseph, you first. What, um, what effect would codifying Roe have on Catholic healthcare? Well, I don't think it's going to happen. So uh, <laughs> I'm very, um, very optimistic in that sense. Uh, to me, one of the, the greatest success stories of the last 30, 40 years is the growth of the pro-life movement, both in terms of its power and, and of its positive effect. You know, the, the, the peak of abortions in America, at the peak, there were like 4,000 abortions a day that were taking place in the United States. And that was, you know, many decades ago. Today, it's more like 2,000 abortions a day. So the, the abortion rate has, has basically halved. And as the population has grown, and the only real explanation for that is that, you know, pro-life efforts have been successful. And, and as you mentioned, right, there are many state laws against abortion, et cetera. There's a very effective pro-life lobby. Uh, the bishops are very, you know, united in fighting against it, et cetera. So I think anyone who'd want to pass a Roe v. Wade, you know, federal law would have a great deal of difficulty. I, I think it would it would be political suicide for a lot of uh, politicians to vote in favor of it. I think uh, you know many uh, who might be in favor of doing so would just count the votes and see that they would lose their reelection bids if they voted for it. So in that sense, uh, and particularly because they they don't have much of a majority, I don't think it's going to happen. But if it did happen, as you say, it, it would it would be very devastating because uh, I think in particular the conscience protections um, would be in danger. And Catholic Hospital could be told, you know, you will either, you know, do abortions or refer for abortions, or you will lose your federal funding and, and all kinds of different threats of that kind could be brought to bear. And I think that's also why it's not going to happen, again, because it would be so radical and, and so much opposition would come out that it would be, I don't know, I, I think it would be a political earthquake. I hope you're right. <laughs> I really hope you're right. Ted, your comments on Yeah, I, on I agree. Question. I agree with Joseph on this. I'm not particularly concerned about uh, the possibility of codifying Roe v. Wade. In fact, here's where the, the change in the Supreme Court comes into play. Uh, we now have a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. If anything, uh, cases that are brought to the Supreme Court are going to lead to further chipping away at Roe v. Wade, further protections for conscience rights. And uh, I, I would imagine the Democrats seeing this possibility will be very leery of enacting radical legislation, which is likely to be struck down. Uh, we haven't had a 6-3 majority of, in the Supreme Court for decades on the conservative side, really for decades and decades. This is very new terrain. I know that John Roberts, the chief justice, tends to be a pragmatist and uh, you know, kind of a political calculator. But uh, when you get six conservative justices, you can have one stray on any big issue and you still get the, a good result. So that's, that's my hope. I, I would think that... Um, we're more likely to see chipping away at Roe v. Wade rather than legislative enactments that re reinforce it. Again, I, I hope I hope you are correct, Ted and Joseph as well too. Uh, another issue that that will likely come up related to abortion is taxpayer funding of it. So again, Joe uh, Biden has said that he will on day one he will repeal the Mexico City policy so that. 
the U.S. will be able to fund overseas agencies that provide or or promote abortion. And this is something that he can do that is done through executive order. So he can do this on day one. Um, legislatively, again, there's uh, he's he's promised to to work to repeal the Hyde Amendment, which would allow direct taxpayer funding of abortion. And we can probably, I would expect, um, I would think we would be we would expect that increase in federal funding for Planned Parenthood and other organizations. So kind of the same question, and we'll start with you, Ted, this time. Um, how would such actions regarding funding of abortion, how would such actions affect Catholics overall and, and Catholic health care uh, specifically? Well, again, I think we're going to have uh, a stalemate on the Hyde Amendment. I mean, it's difficult to predict with things so close, but okay. this uh, this is an amendment named after Henry Hyde of Illinois, a Republican, uh, that was first passed in, in 1976, and it restricts the f- Medicaid funds uh, for uh, abortion. You cannot use Medicaid funds to promote or um, pay for abortions. But I don't really think there is a strong enough legislative force to, to, to remove this uh, the rider, it's typically a rider on the right. federal budget each year, yep. but it's been there for, for quite a while. So I don't see too much to worry about that. I'm not sure about the uh, federal funding for abortion, Planned Parenthood and the like. I expect that Joe Biden will have control over some funds and he can direct them as he pleases. And I'm sure Planned Parenthood will be the beneficiary of that as well as other such organizations. And then there's the Mexico City policy. This is a, uh, well, it's, it's going to be rescinded by uh, Joe Biden, just as Obama rescinded it when he mm-hmm. took over from the Bush administration. Uh, Trump restored it. This uh, policy forbids NGOs uh, from promoting abortion or, or spending funds from the U.S. government uh, overseas for the, for the promotion of abortion in any way. NGOs are non-governmental organizations. They're charitable work, uh, organizations that unfortunately often uh, promote uh, abortion and other uh, immoral practices. Joseph, your comments on funding of abortion. Well, I have to say the Hyde Amendment was the great betrayal of Joe Biden in this election. Uh, he, the one pro-life thing that he had maintained as he was you know, basically giving ground on every front and being in favor of abortion was, well, at least he was not in favor of taxpayer funding for abortions. And because he was having a hard time winning the Democratic nomination, and there was this huge pressure by the abortion lobby saying, either you're 100% on our side or you're our enemy, uh, he caved in. And, you know, even though he had said that in his conscience, he couldn't really square that, et cetera, in the past, he changed his position. And I would say that, you know, this has been a very bipartisan position. So Democrats and Republicans, even if people were in favor of abortion in theory, they didn't think that they had the right to force taxpayers to pay for it. And and now it seems like the abortion lobby has convinced uh, any number of you know uh, pro-choice, quote unquote, pro-abortion uh, congressmen and, and women and, and senators that they should be against the Hyde Amendment, and I, that's a huge loss. I think, um, even though they probably won't be able to pass it, um, you know, and reverse the the Hyde Amendment in in the near future, they're kind of committed to that now, saying that whenever we have a strong majority of Democrats, we are going to try and get force taxpayers to pay for abortion. I think that's just reprehensible. All right. Okay. So let's, let's change gears to a different topic. Let's talk a little bit about uh, religious liberty. And I'd like to focus this part of the discussion specifically around the, the, the Obama and Biden administration, uh, contraception and sterilization coverage mandate that came through the, um, Department of Health and Human Services. So, Joe Biden on the on the campaign on the campaign trail repeated various times that he will rescind the Trump administration's religious liberty protections enjoyed by Catholic and other employers 
who object to having to provide contraception, including abortifacients, uh, and sterilization in their insurance plans. So starting with you, Ted, what effect do you think this will have on Catholic healthcare and, in fact, on Catholics as a whole? Well, <laughs> here I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here because, <laughs> I mean, okay. it's time to just come out and say that the Republican Party has become the pro-life party. The Democratic Party is the pro-abortion party. And, you know, we're, we're talking about Henry Hyde from Illinois. There was another Democrat from Illinois who was defeated in a primary this election cycle. He was a pro-life Democrat. There are hardly yeah. any of them left. They're yeah, being, Dan Lipinski. Okay, yeah, Dan Lipinski. Yeah, they're eliminating them even at the primary level. The Democratic Party has become so radicalized, it cannot accept Anyone, you know, as Joseph was saying, even the Hyde Amendment now is anathema to them, and it has to be rejected. D the Democratic Party used to be the Catholic Party. We were a nation of immigrants. Everyone belonged to the Democratic Party. My parents died as members of the Democratic Party. Uh, I've got five siblings. I was the last one to leave that party and, and join the Republicans. But it's impossible to vote for the Democrats anymore. Uh, the Archbishop of uh, Cardinal Archbishop of New York, Timothy Dolan, wrote a piece. Uh, I think it was in the New York Times, in which he said, "Look, uh, fellow Catholics, the Democrats have abandoned us. Where do we go?" He didn't say go to the Republicans, right? Because it's like it's the, the Democratic Party is so ingrained in the Catholic Church in America that it's hard for us to realize that there really isn't any other place to go, that the Republicans have become the, the pro-life party. And that's just where things are. In fact, President Trump has been one of the best pro-life presidents in the history of the nation. He deserves great credit for that. And uh, so, yeah, it's not good. I mean, they're going to be having the Little Sisters of the Poor again persecuted by yep. Joe Biden, the second Catholic president of the United States. Uh, you've got... Um, Masterpiece Cake Shop? Is Masterpiece that what it's? Yep, Masterpiece Jack, um, Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cake. Yeah, I mean, he has been persecuted, even though the Supreme Court has ruled in his favor previously. Uh, the, the persecutions continue. You know, it, it's, it's going to come down to the courts and how they handle things, and hopefully we'll get better results. Joseph Meany, your take on the religious liberty issues, particularly the contraception and sterilization coverage mandate. Right. I mean, it um, it really brings to mind the little sisters of the poor and uh, those poor little sisters. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of, of time and persecution they have gone through, having to go to the Supreme Court, all the way up to the Supreme Court multiple times, right. just to take care of the poor, just to take care of the poor without having to fund you know, contraception for their nuns and their employees. I mean, come on. It's, it's, it's a real case of religious persecution. And I think, you know, when we talk about religious liberty, uh, the reverse of religious liberty is religious persecution. Basically, people saying your beliefs, your religious beliefs are not valid and we can take away your rights. We can punish you. We can, you know, in the case of the, the Health and Human Services contraceptive mandate, I mean, if you violate that mandate, then they come at you with crippling fines, you know, they, they, they drive you out of business and they'll, they'll, you know, basically shut you down. It's, it's really terrible to have a situation where, um, you know, our cherished constitutional rights, you know, to freedom of religion uh, is, is turning into something that's a bit of a political football. You know, that uh, one party will defend, but the other party won't. And there will be this kind of um, belief that, you know, other rights are more important than, than religious rights and religious liberty rights. To me, um, what's really, really tragic is, again, like, like at the level of the Hyde Amendment, there should be unanimity on this. It should be bipartisan. We can at least agree to disagree you know, and not to force other people. I, I would be against, you know, forcing, um, I don't know, a secular humanist, for instance, to pay for a religious monument, uh, you know, if it went against his beliefs or, or, you know, 
something that would, would violate another person, even if I didn't agree with them and, and I agreed with the project, I would not want to force a person to go against their, their religious or conscientious beliefs to, to do that. Uh, so to me, it's just a, a very sad reflection on our current situation, which is that uh, some individuals and, and unfortunately influential individuals believe that uh, disrespecting and, and, and violating uh, the rights to, to religious expression, religious belief, and the consequences of those uh, is acceptable. And of course, it's not acceptable. So yeah, and, and of course, it has a huge effect on Catholic healthcare. I mean, Catholic hospitals have to operate according to the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services, according to Catholic beliefs. And if uh, they can't operate, you know, if the government makes it impossible for them to operate according to their religious beliefs, they're going to have to shut down. You know, I mean, the little sisters of the poor are not going to be able to, to continue their work if, if they're going to be forced uh, by unjust laws or unjust mandates uh, to violate their, their religious beliefs. Well, we've seen this also in the area of a- adoption, where Catholic agencies have been forced out of the adoption services because they wouldn't follow the mandates of the local city governments, which are, you know, mandating that you have children made available to homosexual couples. This is contrary to Catholic teaching and something that can't be done. And the Catholic adoption services are universally recognized as better and more caring for these children than are the secular ones. But uh, people in power, as Joseph is pointing out here, don't care about that. They're going to shut you down unless you conform to their point of view. Uh, We're we're also going to see, uh, Joe, a return of the idea of religious liberty as something that happens within the four walls of a church. And as soon as you step outdoors, you are no longer protected. This is not what religious liberty has meant, you know, in the early days of this nation and until, you know, the this mid 20th century began to be corrupted. The idea of religious liberty was that you were free to express your religious opinions as you saw fit and free to, to live those convictions in your life as a citizen of the nation. There wasn't this separation between church and state as we understand it today. Yes, there was no funding of sectarian doctrines by the federal government, but you were still free as a private citizen to live your faith. So that we're going to go backwards again on with the Biden administration. Yeah, just a couple of uh, uh, points of information. The uh, Ted, you mentioned the, the Catholic adoption agencies that are being forced to place children with same-sex couples or be shut down. The Catholic social services here in Philadelphia face that. Um, they sued. They they lost at the, the the first level. They lost at the circuit court level. But the case is now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, uh, arguments were heard. It was actually the week of the election, and so we're waiting on the U.S. Supreme Court to rule in that case. So that that'll be a very interesting thing to to keep in mind as we move forward. And also for for listeners, if um, you're not uh, completely familiar with the with the uh, Obama Biden administration contraception sterilization coverage mandate, we did a podcast on it uh, a couple of years ago. It's Bioethics on Air podcast number seventeen, and the title is Tutorial on the HHS Mandate. And we recorded that with Hillary Burns from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. She's an attorney with them, and it was a really wonderful episode. So if um, people like to go back and, and listen to that, there's some, there's great information there. So. Coming back to Joseph, um, what can the NCBC do if and when um, Biden rescinds religious liberty protections uh, from the HHS mandate? Yeah, so I think one of the very good developments in recent years is that there are a great number of truly you know, heroic and, and diligent conservative law firms you know, that specialize in defending conscience rights uh, religious liberty rights, uh, conservative causes in general. And, you know, they can challenge these things in the court. Um, I think, uh, you know, the ACLU are not the only people who can sue. Um, and uh, <laughs> it, it's, important. it's important to, uh, to you know, because these things do violate constitutional protections. And, and when one is doing an unreasonable thing, 
uh, attempts to do that, then it, the redress has to come from the courts. So I, I think uh, the first line of defense and the strongest line of defense is to is to sue against that uh, and to object. And I think the other thing too is to is to make it widely known, you know, that this is persecution, that what is being done, you know, is a violation of, of very fundamental human rights, and that uh, one cannot uh, knuckle under and just obey. Uh, just because the other side um, has the power doesn't mean that they have what is right, you know, and, and uh, might not make right. Uh, as, a, as a bioethics center, we are <clears throat> constantly telling people, you know, what we believe to be the truth and what we believe to be right. And, you know, sometimes those in power don't really care what's right or what's true. They just care what's expedient and what is, you know, to their own advantage. But uh, we have to fight for what is right. And, uh, and the NCBC will definitely do so. Excellent. Ted. Well, um, I really don't have anything further to say than what Joseph has said there. I think he's completely on mark. I agree 100%. I'd like to add one thing to it. It's a, an option for Catholic employers. And I'm assuming that the Biden administration you know, re, uh, reestablishes this mandate and, and takes away religious liberty protections. And that is the Catholic Benefits Association. Uh, they're an organization. They're based out of out of uh, Castle Rock, Colorado, and the CBA, among other things, has received a federal exemption from the contraception and sterilization coverage mandate in perpetuity. So, no matter what happens, no matter who is sitting in the White House, or no matter what laws are passed, um, any member of the Catholic Benefits Association is exempt from this mandate. So, if there are any Catholic employers out there who are looking for protection, um, please contact the CBA because um, that that protection is available for you. All right, changing gears once again, let's talk a little bit about the so-called Equality Act. And the Equality Act, for those who, who may not know, is legislation that if passed, it's actually been passed by the House of Representatives right now. The Senate has not taken any action on it. But it's legislation that essentially enshrines gender ideology into federal law. And, uh, for example, some of the things that uh, if, if this is passed by the, the Congress and signed into law by uh, future President Biden, um, an individual would have the ability to define what his or her own sex is. Um, they'd be able to use the facilities, bathrooms, locker rooms that they want, work jobs based on their own perceived sex. So, for example, the, you know, the monitor of a girl's locker room in a high school could be a biological male who identifies as a female. Uh, this legislation would force compliance with um, various facets of transgender ideology, force name use, pronoun use, both in hospitals, schools, and really workplaces around the country. Um, again, if past Catholic uh, or healthcare, including Catholic healthcare, would have to provide uh, gender affirming psychotherapy. And it would have to provide medical interventions, including puberty blocking hormones, cross-sex hormones, and even surgical sex reassignment procedures, as they're called. And in addition, health insurance plans would have to cover all of these um, all of these interventions that I just mentioned. They would be defined as medically necessary care. So these are just a few of the things that the Equality Act. There's a lot more. Believe me, there's a lot more in this bill. But um, Ted, starting with you. If this were to be passed, and this is one of the things where the, the Senate race in Georgia could play a big, a very big role, if passed, how will the Equality Act, as it is so termed, how will it undermine Catholic health care? And in fact, I would argue the human good. Well, I'm I'm going to uh, decline your offer on this, uh, Joe, because <laughs> I I don't think this can pass. I mean, we're going to have a new uh, Congress in January, mm -hmm. and you know, going back to the House of Representatives, I know it passed in the previous House of Representatives, but the margin for error is so small in the new Congress coming in that something this controversial, I would be surprised if it does pass. I don't know that there is popular support for this. And as I was pointing out earlier, you know, you've know, got a 12-seat gain in the House. The House, with its 435 members distributed across every part of the continental USA and Alaska and Hawaii, is a very good measure of where the people as a whole are trending. 
So the, the movement of the country is not favorable to this. I think parents who want their daughters to compete in sports in their schools and colleges, uh, to hear that men who claim to be women are going to be entering into those programs. You know, after all the struggle for women to get equal funding for sports, it's, it's going to destroy it if you really can't tell the difference between a man and a woman. So, yes, if this were to happen, it'd have to pass the House, have to pass the Senate also, which will probably have a filibuster in, in place against this kind of legislation. If it were to leap those hurdles, it would be very bad for Catholic hospitals. But it would be a further extension of what Joseph was talking about, of how the political order, the when dominated by the Democrats, they have become so radical you must conform to their way of thinking. Otherwise, you're going to suffer major, major penalties. So yes, the threats would be very dire if this type of legislation were to pass. But again, I don't think this is a winning issue with the people at large. I think it's way too controversial. I'm surprised, quite frankly, that it has made this much headway among the medical and scholarly elites I can understand academics, but typically the medical profession is immune from this kind of ideological nonsense. Um, it's quite, quite shocking that it's, it's become this prominent and this destructive, really for young people in particular. I'd actually like to push back on you a little bit on that one because, um, well, let, let's kind of go back. So Joe Biden has said that he would sign this into law on day one. If so, this is a priority for him. And in fact, if you look back, um, well, if you look at at state level and local level, there are many states and many local municipalities who already have essentially Equality Act legislation in place. That's happening around the country. In fact, the the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm just I'm blanking on the on the case this past summer where they. Uh, basically said that it was discrimination in employment law for employers to, um, you know, to to say, you know, you have a biological man who identifies as a woman that, you know, you can't, uh, you have to accept that. So this is actually, this is a reality on a lot of different levels. And in fact, Barack Obama, when he was president, um, he couldn't get it passed through the Congress because he didn't, you know, the Democrats didn't have control of the Congress, but he used, you know, as you said earlier, the phone and the pen, he used executive orders to, um, to tell the Department of Education or through the Department of Education to tell schools. It was his famous dear colleague letter that, you know, schools, if you're receiving any public school, if you're receiving any kind of public money, you had to go along with this ideology. Um, he used the, uh, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, uh, section 1557, he interpreted it to mean that hospitals had to provide, you know, all of this quote unquote gender affirming things for patients. So I guess I, I would come back and ask and say, well, maybe on the legislative end, you know, they might not be able to pass this through the Congress, but I could certainly see Joe Biden um, using his pen and executive orders to say, you have to do this, you have to do this, just as Barack Obama did, and all he would be really doing in a lot of states is is supporting Equality Act like laws that are already in place. Well, of course, it's possible. Yeah, it could happen, especially if the Republicans lose the two Georgia seats. You could actually get something, perhaps through at the legislative level. But otherwise, I don't think the pen and the phone can overcome state law. Uh, but nonetheless, you you point out something very significant, Joe that many of the so-called blue states uh, already have these laws on the books and Catholic facilities in those areas are very severely cramped by this type of legislation and find their mission hampered and, and damaged by it. Uh, so yeah, it is a serious problem. It's, uh, it's, it's occurring, I think, right now in more of the blue states. And if you wanna get a good long range view of what this could look like, just look north to Canada where this has become even more prevalent there, in large part, again, because of the judiciary, which is, uh, again, like the U.S. Supreme Court legislating from the bench. Yeah. Joseph, your comments on the so-called Equality Act. I guess my main comment is it's not very equal. 
<laughs> um, you know, it's a bit of a misnomer to call it the Equality Act because it's basically one group imposing itself on another. And the main problem I would see with the Equality Act is that it doesn't really enshrine rights for any people uh, that are of a sort of, you know, negative nature that, you know, people not to be persecuted or anything like that, but it's rather persecuting others, saying you have to, you know, knuckle under to this ideology. You have to, you know, conform to what we say is right. Uh, your religious beliefs, you know, and your your strongly held convictions uh, are illegal, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you try to, to carry them out in practice. So to me, um, what it really does is show a, a very ideological attitude. Um, and I think it's it's one of the terrible things about a kind of a radical leftist ideological perspective is, you know, lack of respect for freedom of speech, lack of respect for other people's opinions. And I think uh, one of the things that uh, conservatives have become much better at over the years is respecting uh, the rights of others to say uh, what they think and and to act as they believe, you know, within reasonable limits. And and we all agree that you know freedom of speech does have some limitations. Uh, if you're you know inciting to to violence or if you are you know committing violence, <laughs> um, you don't you don't have a right to do that. But the point is uh, trying to make criminal uh, other people's beliefs, uh, trying to force people to go against their consciences is a terrible violation of human rights. So to me, the, the real danger of a so, so-called Equality Act is that it's going to create a situation where people are not equal, uh, where people are, you know, forced right. uh, to violate their, their deeply held beliefs. And, and that is not acceptable. Yeah, great point. So, uh, Joseph, how has the NCBC responded to the to the Equality Act in the past, and and what will it do if either it's signed into law or it comes into effect in some sort of executive order? Right. Well, I think we will maintain our position because uh, we can do no other. I mean, we have to stand firm for what is true and, and what we believe, and we have to use all the means at our disposal. So, I think we definitely have to, you know get the word out. We have to fight it in terms of, you know, lawsuits and in terms of uh, legal redress. Uh, we have to make it an issue in terms of, you know, political political action, right? Uh, both at the level of, you know, referendums or at the level of elections. But um, the thing that we cannot do is to simply, you know, sit back and allow some kind of injustice like that to, uh, to go by without, without strong, strong protest. And, and really, you know, disobedience. Uh, we cannot obey such a law. Uh, we cannot obey uh, a violation of, you know, deeply held uh, religious beliefs. Uh, you know, and, and it really comes down to a situation of martyrdom, right? In, in the past, uh, there were unjust laws and, and people were required to do things that, that really violated their core beliefs. And they said, no, we cannot. And so then it basically comes down to, well, how far are you willing to go? Uh, right. And the church has always said, well, you know, <laughs> if your choice is between losing your life and, you know, committing a, a sin, you have to basically accept martyrdom. It, it's a very sad situation. And, you know, we, we never want martyrdom. I, I know a priest who was really wonderful says you can never pray for martyrdom or, or be happy about a martyrdom because every martyrdom involves a, a mortal sin, right? <laughs> involves a person right. unjustly killing a person. And uh, even though, you know, they, they're very glorious and, and, and go to heaven and the rest of it, there, there was a very unjust act that took place. So we do not seek martyrdom, but at the same time, you know, we cannot uh, sit back and just accept uh, the reign of injustice. Right. Ted, your comments. Well, um, we thankfully, we're not in danger of losing our lives today, but we are in danger of losing our livelihoods, the ability to support our families. If you run a business that runs afoul of these uh, ideological demands from the far left of our country, uh, you could have your business wiped out, closed down, 
Catholics can have, well, their adoption agencies taken away, their hospitals closed down, and it won't matter to these ideologues that this hurts the community as a whole or makes social life much worse than it was before. Seattle, Washington is planning further cuts in its police department and is hoping to be able to abolish their juvenile prison system in the ideological hope of somehow eradicating crime by, I don't know, (laughs) just ignoring that it exists. Uh, The police have been leaving the department in droves, but it does not matter to them. They don't care. They will destroy things in order to bring about their fantasy. It's truly a fantasy. So it is, it's going to be damaging and harmful for the country until the American public gets a grip on this and ensures that these people are kept away from the levels of uh, levers of political power. Right. And for our listeners, uh, just so you know, the NCBC published uh, an article, 10 Harms of the Equality Act, that's available in our July 2019 edition of Ethics and Medics, and that's available uh, either through our website or you can contact me, uh, and I'd be happy to uh, to send that to you. So we're moving towards the end of our time, and I'd like to to jump down to our our penultimate question, and it 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 covers an issue that Joseph and Ted you both brought up, and it it's it's Joe Biden's Catholicity, and so the question is this: Joe Biden over the years and and certainly through this campaign has repeatedly professed that he is a Catholic. Can you evaluate this claim in light of his record and what he has stated he will do as president? Ted, if you could start us off. Uh, That's a very difficult question. I mean, ultimately, it's a question about whether Joe Biden is truly Catholic or not. It's it's a strange thing. He's a baptized Catholic. Right. But he is- So ontologically, is, he's a Catholic. Yes. But uh, in practice, other than going to Mass and receiving the Eucharist, which he apparently still receives to this day as if he's a Catholic in good standing, everything he, he stands for is pretty much opposed to the Catholic teachings in the area of morality. Uh, so it's it's uh, mind-boggling to me. Uh, I think he will be not only the second Catholic president we have had, but also the most anti-Catholic president we have had since Ulysses S. Grant, who, who lived during the time of the infamous Blaine Amendments, which were designed to shut down the Catholic school system and generally persecute Catholics during uh, one of the know-nothing eras of this country. So it's it's um, amazing to me, but you essentially have two kinds of Catholics. You've got practicing Catholics and you've got nominal Catholics. Uh, practicing Catholics generally, as, as I look at the stats, vote Republican pro-life representatives and nominal Catholics vote Democrat nominal Catholics, if I got that right. Yeah. So he's one of the nominals. Joseph. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it really does come down to that, that fact that uh, he takes positions that are diametrically opposed to what the church uh, teaches on, on many moral issues and what that, essentially puts him into is, is very bad standing as a Catholic. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a strange situation where, you know, he might affirm uh, a lot of the creed, you know, and, and, uh, and basic Catholic um, sort of Trinitarian theology or all kinds of things like that. But when it comes to the area in which he is engaged, right, the area of government and, and the impact that it has on people, uh, many, many of his positions, you know, in favor of abortion or or contraception or, or homosexual marriage or different things like that, will be um, against what the church teaches. And and so, in in that sense, uh, he would be a very bad Catholic, <laughs> um, one who does not really um, engage with the faith. And and you know, it, it is a 
a question of conscience, right? That uh, we have to form ourselves um, and and to use the resources of the church to understand uh, these moral issues and then to strive to conform our lives and, and our actions in favor of them. Um, and it, it seems to me like he has basically uh, decided that there are two Joe Bidens. There's there's the one who you know has a rosary in his pocket and who goes to mass, etc. And there's another one who is in favor of uh, all this bad legislation and and these these really evil, uh, I would say, actions such as promoting abortion. And the two really are not um, compatible. So in a sense, you know, the real Joe Biden has to stand up, but um, it seems to be that the real Joe Biden is actually someone who's uh, against what most of the Catholic Church teaches in in many many moral areas. Yeah, throughout this whole campaign and even now, the Jesus's words are running through my head, where he says, "What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but lose his soul in the process?" And I just, I, I, I just wonder. Um, and I hope, and I, I hope Joe Biden hasn't lost his soul or will lose his soul, and I pray that he doesn't. But I, I just, it's amazing. I, uh, I do just, think we have to pray for him a lot because uh-huh. he's he's definitely lost um, his, I would say, his moral compass, uh, which is so vital for for being in a state of grace and and being able to uh, to function you know, as, as a good Catholic. So I, I think he definitely needs a lot of our prayers. And, and I think our pastors need to reach out to him in a special way, you know, because I think his soul is, uh, is very much in, in a bad place. And, and he needs, he's not a young man either. He needs to, to really think about his eternal destiny. Yeah. All right. So wrapping things up, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Joseph Meany. So I would just say we have to pray for our political leaders. We have to pray for our leaders in society that uh, they make good choices and that they do not allow, I would say, injustice or violations of rights to go forward. Um, one of the things that uh, we do not have control over many times is, you know, what challenges are, are sent to us, uh, you know, like this COVID-19 pandemic. But what we do have control over is how we react, you know, what our response will be. And so we have to be as loving as possible, uh, as faithful as possible to pray and to um, really ask for conversion, ask for the strength uh, and all the virtues really of perseverance and courage to stand up for what is right. Uh, Because I think there is a lot of confusion out there and, and there's a need for a very strong and very good uh, restatement of, of some very basic truths, you know, that in charity um, need to be defended. So I think uh, there, there will be a lot of challenges coming up. And I think a lot of confusion because people will say, wow, you know, Joe Biden's Catholic, but he's doing this. And, and so there will be need for clarification. And there will be need for uh, people to really stand up for what is right and, and to make it known. And it's not easy when you have the media uh, by and large, that uh, doesn't stand for a lot of the things that the the church and uh, and I would say even sort of basic natural law uh, says is right. But we have to to not not give up. You know, we have to persevere. And I think that's our faithfulness and our, our our life of prayer is is very important to that. Very well said, Ted Furton. What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Well, following up on that, uh, I would uh, just appeal to all Christians to maintain, engage in the battle, stay engaged in the political sphere, vote, uh, use argument and persuasion. Uh, you know, we live in an age where there are alliances across Christian denominations, which would have been inconceivable in earlier days. We share a lot of the same moral values and concerns, moral concerns about the direction of our country and the future happiness of the citizens of this country. You cannot be happy with the path uh, that we're being called to go down by what is proposed by the, the radicals in the Democratic Party. It's a, it's a losing future. So we need to stick together. We need to fight the good fight. Uh, but we also need to be compassionate. We have to realize that many of these issues are very sensitive to people. 
they have been told by the media how to think about these things. For example, transgenderism, you know, to, to say something contrary to it, to the, to the ideological movement doesn't mean we don't have compassion for the people who suffer gender dysphoria, uh, who are confused, uh, who, need, who need our help. So we've got to be both willing to fight and uh, compassionate. Compassionate fighters, I would say, is where we, what we need to be today. Excellent. Joseph Meany and Ted Furton, thank you for joining us on our Bioethics on Air podcast today. You're welcome, Joseph. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcast, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening today, and may God's peace be with you.